This episode of Undercommon Taste is sponsored by... Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old-school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. Welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. And tonight, we're going to keep the Saturn and Saturnalia. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we are doing a bit of a holiday special. Just to let everyone know on the front end, this is going to be our last episode of the year. We're taking the 22nd and the 29th off, and we'll be back next year on January 5th. So the first Wednesday in 2022 will be our next episode after this. Holy crap, we made it through another year. I know, right? (laughs) It's been a journey. It has. It has. (laughs) And I'm going to try and power through this episode my daughter brought home a cold from daycare so they'll do that they do she's my little play grat and i love her but damn child that's the age and i mean she'll hopefully you know be robust and healthy as she's older but now is the time where she's gonna catch everything probably twice well that's because she's in that stage where she's licking everything (laughs) i swear that child I don't know how many times a day I have to tell her not to put things in her mouth or not to put her mouth on things. Ludwig but would approve. Ludwig would approve that dragon-looking gnome. <laughs> anyway, so part of what we're doing today, we're going through... This is actually my wife's suggestion for an episode. Go through and pick a bunch of different characters from holiday media from this time of year and stat them out. Talk a little bit about them, how we would pull them from popular media into a D&D game. We had a huge list to choose from just because there is so much. So we picked out some of our favorites. We're trying to get a sampling, kind of not all just Americana culture. We are trying to kind of get a bit of a wide net out. If your favorite's not on here, there are several that we pop up in an honorable mention list that we'll probably get to next year or year after. But Yeah, and if you have one that you really, really want that is a non-Eurocentric culture because all of what we've got are pretty eurocentric mainly because that's where christianity was established really and where these sort of cultural characters really developed but if you have something that you would like us to include next year send it to us in an email under common taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through a twitter account at uct homebrew you can also find us on our Instagram and Facebook accounts at Undercommon Taste. Any of those places, drop us a line, tell us what you want, and we will include it next year in our list. Yeah, I mean, Ian and I are both very open to learn new things. That's half the fun, really. Oh, yeah. And there were things that I learned doing prep for this one. You oh, know, absolutely. A couple of these characters I had never heard of. And then one I had kind of heard of, but didn't really know a lot about. So being able to go and do a little bit of research and learn some more about these characters was actually a whole lot of fun. So real quick, just to give you a heads up for our list, we've got Krampus. 
because you have to have Krampus. We're, we're, yeah, we're touching Krampus, on... was, Krampus was going to be on this list regardless of if anybody requested him or not. Right. We did have a request from the Nutcracker. So, you know, we've got the huge Nutcracker switch, which is a little bit of Russian, Eastern Eurasia, but also, you know, obviously the, the Nutcracker Ballet. Very, very popular. Some awesome based, music. Based on the story by Alexandre Dumas, the French author. Correct. Who requested Nutcracker, Ian? That was Anthony Domenico, or at LibrarianPC on Twitter. Awesome. A great suggestion, and thank you. I heard that one, and that was one I didn't even think of initially. And I heard that, and I just let up like, oh my god, yes, we have to do the Nutcracker. Yes. So, so great suggestion. Awesome. So Nutcracker is on the list. Uh, Yule Cat made the list. That was requested by My Sound Delve, at My Sound Delve. Also... Herschel of Ostropole, which was one that I was not familiar with. He's a folk character from Ukraine, I believe it is. He's a Jewish folk character and was made kind of popular in a more modern sense with a book called Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins from uh, 1989. And that was requested by Zach Katz at Fantasize Me Pod. So thank you for that great one. Again, another great suggestion. I got to learn a ton on this one. Well done. And those are the four that we're going to go into detail on. So the Nutcracker, Yule Cat, Herschel of Ostropol, and Krampus. But we also have some honorable mentions that we're going to go into in a little bit of detail near the end of the episode. Some of the ones that we thought were good that we just didn't think there was enough there to really go into real depth on the character. Or they could have been just where if we wanted to do everybody we want to do, this would have been like a 12-day podcast. Yeah. And, and nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that there's somebody out there who wants to hear that, but I don't want to edit that. Fair enough. So <laughs> so that's that's where that one comes in. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to get started with the Nutcracker, I believe. Yes, we are going to get started off with the Nutcracker. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, the Nutcracker is a story by Alexandre Dumas that was based on some other French folk tales which preceded it and was later made into the suite and the ballet composed by Tchaikovsky, I believe it was. I think That's it's correct. A, yeah. So the general premise is there's this family, they're having a Christmas party, and their uncle shows up with these life-size dolls. One of them is this big old nutcracker that the girl ends up dreaming comes to life, and it fights some mice, and there's a lot of other subtlety involved. The story of the ballet varies a bit from the short story, mainly to clean it up and give it room for dance numbers, I think, <laughs> because it is a ballet. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at the children's story of the Nutcracker, because it was a children's story much in the way that Grimm's fairy tales were children's stories. It's a little dark. It's a little gritty. If you want to have some fun, seriously, check it out. Go to your local library, rent it. You can, I'm sure you can find versions on, on YouTube or online or however you want to do that. It's got some darkness to it in a kind of a good way. It's one of those darker Christmas stories, but obviously a classic. Yes. So let's go ahead and get started on the Nutcracker. When I sat down and started thinking about how I wanted to do the Nutcracker, my first thought immediately went to a wood golem. So a construct that is made from wood, because... Let's face it, if a Nutcracker were to come alive, that's what it would be. Yeah, I mean, that's almost exactly a perfect stand-in for the Nutcracker. I think we batted around the concept of animated armor as well for a 5e port. Right, and, I, and when I went to put everything together, I did base a lot of the stats that I put in to the Nutcracker on the animated armor stat block. 
I remember that in third edition, I think it was in one of the later monster manuals, like monster manual two or monster manual three, they actually had wood golems as a subtype of golem. They had a lot of different golems in third edition. They had a lot of different monsters in third edition, a lot more than we have in fifth. But Well, third edition hung around for a while. I mean, between it, it three did. and then 3.5, third edition had a good run. Again, fourth edition, Dark Ages, a lot of stuff got skipped because it wasn't received terribly well. And fifth edition is rounding itself out. And so hopefully we'll get some more of those monsters and some more of these things that we had going back and forth to come out. So the way that I envisioned the Nutcracker, just based off of the dramatizations of the ballet that I remember watching as a kid in elementary school. He has this Cossack look to him. He's got a riding saber. He's got a musket. So I wanted to be able to pull those aspects in. He also has a very strong defender, protector sort of aspect to him. And... The big culmination is where the Nutcracker is fighting the Mouse King or the Rat King. So I wanted to add some elements that were reminiscent of those aspects of the story. Right. If I recall correctly, the young daughter in the actual story, she is either sickened by a rat or she got bit by a rat. Forget which before she fell asleep. So while she's asleep, if I recall, it's almost like a fever dream she's having. Kind of like flavors of a later version, Wizard of Oz, where, you know, there was an injury or she was sick and so had this big fantastical dream. So again, that Nutcracker was trying to protect her and the family from the rats, but definitely fulfilling the role of a defender. So part of what I wanted to do here was add a couple levels of paladin to this construct. I didn't want to actually add spells. I didn't feel like actually giving him spells would really fit with the feel of this, of this creature that we're putting together. But I wanted him to have that extra aspect of, you know, it's there to fight the rats. It's there to fight the vermin. It's there to protect the people of the house. And so this is something Ian and I had debated because we were thinking fighter or paladin and paladin really, really fits. And we didn't want to make it too much of a paladin because again, casting spells doesn't fit the character terribly well, but having that oath, you know, again, that oath of protection would have been perfect. The other thing that winds up being kind of perfect with the paladin is that ability to lay on hands because again, the nutcracker dealing with this concept of sickness and disease, particularly around Christmas time. So it did need some sort of regenerative or healing ability, I I personally felt. And I did leave in there that its lay on hands won't have any effect on it because it has no effect on undead and constructs, and it is a construct. So it has to be selfless in this healing that it provides. I modified their divine sense, so rather than it being able to detect celestials, fiends, and undead, it is able to detect the presence of rats, insects, and other vermin. And again, that's just a beautiful thing. And then with its divine smite, I made it specific. I called it smite vermin. So it is mechanically still a divine smite, except that it gets the extra D8 of damage against rats, insects, and other vermin, as opposed to fiends or undead. And then I kept the anti-magic susceptibility that animated armor has. So it's still going to have that shortcoming if dealing with somebody who can disrupt magic. And then for its resistances, immunities, all of that, it's going to have resistances and immunities that line up with being a construct. So it's going to be immune to poison and psychic because it doesn't have 
you know, a body that poison can function. It doesn't have a brain that psychic damage can attack. It's vulnerable to fire because it's made of wood. And I added a damage resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage from non-magical attacks. I would be willing to debate that one. You find that in most constructs that block, so I'm okay with that. And then it's got the animated armors, blind sight and 60 feet, blind beyond that. It understands common, but it can't speak. It's a construct, and it has no voice box. I have no voice, and I must scream. It's a big old wooden golem. Now, again, given a bunch of extra time, another neat thing we could have done, but again, we would have been here forever if we did everything we wanted to, would be to make like a bunch of CR one quarter or CR one half toy soldiers that it could command. Again, that would have been a lot of fun. We can leave that to the DM's discretion, but if you want to have your full-on Nutcracker Ballet one-off, We've got the Nutcracker set up for you. You can find vermin all over the old monster manuals. Some half CR fighters, and there you go. Just grab the bandit stat block from the back of the monster manual, change them from humanoids to constructs, and there you go. (laughs) Merry Christmas. First one in your stocking. (laughs) (laughs) And then just real quick for its attacks, it has a saber. I use the longsword stats just because there's no reason not to it fit better we discussed possibly using the scimitar but the scimitar doesn't feel quite right with the whole cossack feel of the nutcracker and where it historically was coming yes from. mechanically speaking sabers are a little more long sword than scimitar i mean you still have that slightly curved blade it's still sharp on one side as opposed to both but mechanically it's, it works a little different yeah so it's just a basic d8 because it has two levels of paladin it has a fighting style and we took the dueling fighting style because the fight between the nutcracker and the rat king is a big deal in the ballet and so he gets an extra plus two on his damage rolls with that saber Ooh, the one thing we did forget we also again kind of going with that early 20th century cossack feel we did equip him with a flintlock musket we did equip him with a musket I modified the standard musket as listed in the DMG. If you were wondering where the firearms in 5th edition are, all of the actual published official firearms are on page 268 of the DMG. You're welcome. (laughs) Yes, you can also go back. That was one of our early episodes where we were digging about old stuff, forgotten things in DMG. And we actually had an episode where we covered some of the firearm rules as well. Yes. So I modified it a little bit. I bumped up its damage a bit. I bumped it up from a 1d12 to a 2d12, but then I also made it a recharge. So it's on a recharge six. So at the start of each of its turns, you roll a d6. If it comes up six, it gets the musket back. And on top of the extra damage, target has to succeed on a DC 13 strength save or be knock prone. I think that's a pretty decent one because the mass of a musket ball will put you on your butt. Yeah, those things are pretty beefy. I got to visit some of the museums in Gettysburg when I was a young man, when I was 16, 17. And, you know, they had shattered hips and femurs from musket rounds, which was kind of terrifying. Looking back, the only other thing I would have added to the musket that I think we kind of overlooked, but I'm okay with it, is the bayonet. So you could have had like a use it as a spear for piercing damage at that point. Probably a 1d4 or 1d6 because it's not particularly a spear. Well, if we made it a d6, that would be the stats for a spear. Okay. Yeah, But I don't really want to do that because that takes away from the fact that he has a saber as his main weapon. exactly. So, I mean, I was kind of okay leaving it off. But again, if you want to throw that on there 
for cosmetics or you really, really feel that that musket should have a bayonet, and you're probably right, it should realistically be there. Maybe it's only decorative, I don't know. Just stat it as a spear and be done. <laughs> it's there for looking pretty, not for stabbing things. Well, an actual bayonet is there to stab people. Yes, well, I meant for the stab block, but yes. <laughs> right. right. All right. That pretty well takes care of the Nutcracker. And now I kind of want to put on like a good metal version of the Nutcracker suite because I believe it was Autumn Turns Red, Autumn Falls Red has a really good cover of that. So that's on my two playlist next. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Trans-Siberian has done a version of it too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's the one that most people will have heard if they if have not the ballet it. version. Correct. All right. Next up on our list is Yule Cat. So Yule Cat is an Icelandic folktale. The gist of it is is this giant black cat that prowls the streets looking for people who haven't gotten any new clothes for Christmas. And if you haven't gotten any new clothes for Christmas, he eats your supper and then he eats you. Yule Cat's kind of an asshole. Now, I got to do a lot of research on this one. Not a lot of research, but a fair bit. This one was a fun one to kind of look up. And I read two different versions. One was if you did not receive any Christmas clothes, he would eat your dinner or eat you. The other one was if you were not wearing your newly received Christmas clothes, he would eat your dinner and eat you. I like that one better. Yeah, I kind of like that one too. It gives you an excuse to wear that ugly sweater. It really gives, I mean, okay. I wasn't a huge asshole as a kid. I may have been a little bit of an asshole. And I think anybody who's honest with themselves when they were like five, six, seven, eight, and they saw that big box and they'd pick it up and they felt that soft, you know, kind of the clothing wrapper, a little bit of disappointment. You're like, yeah, I'm going to get a really cool big, oh, it's going to be something I can wear. And then, you know, I was meh about my style at the time anyway. So that was always like the big letdown. I wasn't going to throw a tantrum over it. I wasn't going to be like, oh, this sucks. But it wasn't what I was hoping was in the box. I was always all right about clothes at Christmas time because I never got any really ugly things for Christmas. But the aspects of Yule Cat, I found a copy of the poem that had been translated from Icelandic to English. And the gist that I got from the poem is it is a call towards charity. It's a call to find the less fortunate and provide for them. Because Yule Cat is almost a stand-in for the elements, the winter, the cold, and is saying, look out for the less fortunate, give them assistance to help them through the cold winter, or else Yule Cat will eat them, the winter cold will consume them, and they will die. And I like that. And this is why Ian has such such a much better alignment than I do, because I read this. <laughs> and this is kind of what makes me think Yule Cat was an asshole, because the poem specifically says that Yule Cat goes after the poor. Yes. If you're rich, Yule Cat don't give a crap. If you're poor, Yule Crap going to eat your dinner and then you. But the fact that the Yule Cat's going to eat the dinner of the poor folk and not even bother with the rich folk, I'm like, what the hell, you asshole? <laughs> right, yeah. But then Ian's like that, and I could see with translation that this could be a good call for Christmas charity. Of course, if you're living in more Western America society, again, I don't think the rich people are going to care too terribly much if the Yule Cat eats the poor people unless they don't have anybody else to work for minimum wage. And then I will step off my politics box here in a second. <laughs> Yule Cat needs to go eat the rich. Yeah, absolutely. I can get behind that. They've got a much tastier Christmas dinner. They've got marbling. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're, they're sitting there eating some Wagyu. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. So whenever I was putting Yulcat together, I decided to start off of the basis of a displacer beast because I wanted to draw on its sort of mysterious. It's got that subterfuge going on. It's one of those things where you're not going to notice it until it's too late. It's not going to necessarily give you any advance warning. So you have to prepare yourself ahead of time and then hope that it notices. Yeah, this is kind of like the Xenomorph in the Alien series where it's going to pop up, and by the time it's there, it's probably It's too, too late to late. do anything. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So basing it off of the Displacer Beast, I kept the avoidance ability, so anything that lets it make a saving throw to take half damage, it takes half damage on a fail and no damage on a success. I gave it some innate spells just to sort of play into all of how it works so it has at will darkness and detect thoughts because it's going to come in the dark of the night while everyone else is sitting around eating their dinner and it's going to be using detect thoughts to glean who is actually wearing their new things and who is just trying to fake it now one of the fun things we did come across with yule cat is we were kind of trying to figure out the dimensions i mean it's obviously if it can eat a whole person it's not a house cat initially we were thinking okay maybe you know, like mountain lion tiger lion size and so we decided to actually go and look up some of the cultural art for yule cat and this thing appears to be generally about the size of a house we didn't want to make it gargantuan Gantuan. So we were looking back and forth and we determined that this is probably more of a medieval to Victorian era type myth. And those houses were a bit smaller. So we picked the huge stat block, which is going to be about 20 by 20. So that would be about the size of an older 18th, 19th century cottage. Yeah. And the old tales do say that it towers above the houses. So it had to be bigger than about 10, 12 feet. And huge does seem to be about the right size for that. If I recall correctly, giants in D&D are typically huge. So that is about the size that we're going for. But yes, Yule Cat is literally a house cat in that it is the size of a house. Though I kind of want to see a Yule Cat versus like a young adult dragon. (laughs) <laughs> I think that would be an interesting thing to play out on the table. If we ever decide to like go a, a who would win type thing and we roll, that's actually something we need to do is, is roll battles <laughs> against NPCs to see who would win, have a battle royale type thing. We right. got Yule Cat versus Dragon. Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll add that to the list. Add that to the list. So in keeping with the whole Displacer Beast, that displacement, that, that mystery, I modified a little bit, called it Shadow Meld. So... When it's in dim light or darkness, attacks against it have disadvantage, which I think may actually be more or less how it actually is supposed to go anyway. I think darkness imposes disadvantage on attack rolls, but this is just establishing that if it is in dim light or darkness, attacks against it have disadvantage. And if any part of it is within bright light, that trade is disrupted until the end of its next turn. So the way to combat Yule Cat is to literally light up the neighborhood like a Christmas tree. Absolutely. And again, going with the whole Christmas theme with brightness and light and radiant energy and dawn, again, that ties into the whole thing. I mean, so much things happen at daybreak of Christmas Day or the reasons why we have lights on the trees to drive off the evil spirits and of darkness. So yeah, I mean, this fits in with a ton of various lores and holiday theming. So that is absolutely perfect. Just as a little personal 
flavor thing. I gave it an ability I'm calling landing with grace so that it takes no damage from falling and always lands on its feet. It's a cat. Because, because it's a cat. And it's a cat. It's a giant cat. So that means that it can fall a whole lot further without taking damage than a standard house cat. I think something we should have also added, not necessarily, but would have been fun, is, you know, it has the impulse to, like, knock over any kind of water tower it sees, just kind of, (laughs) again, cat. (laughs) Right. And now playing into the fact that it has an at-will darkness spell, because that would be a way for it to ensure that it can stay hidden in illuminated areas. I also gave an ability that I'm calling Cat's Eyes, which is similar to the... uh, what is it? Infernal Sight. It's an invocation that warlocks get that lets them see through darkness spells that they cast. So basically, whenever Yule Cat uses its innate darkness spell to cast darkness, it can see through its own darkness. And again, that makes sense because cat. So going into the actions, it's a cat. So it has multi-attack. It can make one bite and two claw attacks. Because its whole thing is it eats people as its bite attack If it hits a creature that's large or smaller with its bite attack, that creature becomes grappled. And until the grapple ends, it can't make another bite attack on another target. And as a partner to that bite grappling, it has a swallow. So if you're grappled by it at the start of its turn, it's going to make another bite attack against you. And if that hits, you're going down its gullet. No, again, that makes perfect sense doing cat things. And so just the standard, it takes... A certain amount of damage every turn from being digested. And see here, it can have one large or up to four medium or up to nine small creatures swallowed at a time. Because it's huge. And if it takes 20 damage or more on a single turn, it has to succeed on a con save or vomit up everything in its stomach. Um, Including dinner. Including dinner. (laughs) I like this. Now, again, given the fact that this cat is about 20 feet long and 20 feet high, and a people is about, you know, five feet high, really that does put us close to proportion to cat and mouse, strangely enough. I think a really fun scenario you could run with this would be along the lines of maybe one of my favorite Aesop's fables, the belling of the cat, where all the mice want to get together and they decide that they need to put a bell on the cat so they know if it's coming. And so maybe that's what your party is enlisted to do is to try to track down, find your cat and affix it with a bell, maybe a church bell or a giant cow bell or something, so that when it's coming into town to check to see if people have and are wearing their Christmas clothes, the bell will go off and give the villagers time to prepare or run away. Yeah, that could be fun because a lot of the artwork that we found for Yule Cat depicts Yule Cat wearing a golden bell on a red ribbon as a collar. So that could be something to do. And then the claw attack, it's got a little bit of bludgeon damage, a little bit of slashing damage because it's batting with this giant mitt. And because it's batting, if it hits a target with one of its claw attacks, it can use its bonus action to make two more attacks against that creature. So that bat, bat, bat. Yeah, no. Like like cats do. Like cats do. I like that. The one thing I would have thought to add, again, just as a lark, not as anything completely compressed, Ian and I have been able to play a D&D game online with some other broadcasters. It's been a lot of fun. But the concept of, you know, giant catnip in the form of mushrooms. So, you know, if you could bring some catnip for the old cat, maybe as a Christmas gift. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, we've been playing with Mike from 19 Hits of Dragon and Matt and Eric from The Goblin's Corner. Eric's our DM for this misadventure that we're having. So shout out to them. Go listen to their podcast. They're great. 
Yeah, great guys. Lots um, of fun. Oh yeah, we're having a blast on this. And I have to admit that that particular aspect with the extra bat attacks, I did pull that in part from a creature that Matt created on an episode that would have been two weeks ago by the time this comes out, where they're doing their ludicrous bestiary on feline monsters. So yes, go listen to that because it's amazing. (laughs) On top of that, because it is a legendary figure, it has legendary actions. So it's got three legendary actions. It can use one to bat, so make a claw attack. Use one to fade into darkness, which it casts the darkness spell. Or it can use two actions to let out a fearsome yowl, which functions as the frightful presence ability that dragons have. So everything that can hear it within 120 feet has to make a wisdom save or become frightened for a minute. And becomes immune for 24 hours if they succeed. I really enjoyed looking up the stuff for this Yule Cat. It was fun. This is the first year I've heard of Yule Cat. So God bless the internet for bringing us different flavors from different cultures and stuff like that. Because Absolutely, yes. Again, this was a really, really fun one to do. And that particular one I added because the poem does mention hearing Yule Cat yowl as it comes into town. Yeah. It's like, that's your two minute warning. If you got something to put on, you best be going and putting it on real quick because you ain't got much time left. That's right. So this Christmas, when your kids are complaining that they got socks in their stocking or wherever they get their Christmas socks, tell them you did it so they wouldn't get eaten by Yule Cat. Yes, absolutely. It's like, you best go put on that clean underwear now. (laughs) Okay, so the third character that we are bringing up is Herschel of Ostropol. This one was a ton of fun. I had never heard of Herschel before. I don't believe Ian had. No, I had not. This character is quickly climbing up my list of heroes. He's kind of awesome. I kind of love this dude. Yeah, this is like an 18th century, is it Diogenes? Yeah, kind of. The one, Behold a Man? Yeah, that's Diogenes, yeah. Because his whole thing was, he was a jester. He's a Jewish folk hero from Ukraine, I think. Ukraine, Poland, Poland, that general area. The area is now Ukraine. It used to be part of Poland at the time that he was alive. Again, the boundaries have shifted for various reasons, but yeah. But this guy is everything I want to be in life. I mean, he was well-known. He was generally, if not well-liked, then well-tolerated. He was witty. He was sharp-tongued. He was snide. I mean, this guy is just... Kind of everything. He's my everything. (laughs) He saved most of his vitriol for the rich, which was great. Yeah. But yeah, that's the sort of person that we're dealing with here. And the story in particular, Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins, basically, so Herschel is walking into this town on the first night of Hanukkah, and he's expecting to come into town and find a place to stay, you know, see all the menorahs up in the windows and have lot keys and be just you know, there to experience the whole generosity of the Hanukkah season. And enjoy the holidays as you do. And enjoy the holiday as you do. And so he comes into town and it's dark. And he's asking, what in the world's going on here? Don't you know that it's the first night of Hanukkah? And they're all coming out saying, well, we can't celebrate Hanukkah because goblins have moved into the um, synagogue up on top of the hill. And every time we try to light our menorahs, they come down and they blow out the candles. Every time we try to cook latkes, they blow out our cooking fires so we can't make latkes. And it's just 
a very miserable thing. And I said, well, how do we fix this? That was Herschel's first thing is, how do we fix this? He says, well, you have to spend eight nights in the synagogue and you have to light the menorah every night and keep the goblins from blowing it out. And on the last night, the king of the goblins has to light the menorah by his own hand. And in doing that, the curse will be broken. And so he goes up to the synagogue with a bunch of hard boiled eggs and a jar of pickles and proceeds to outwit and outmaneuver the goblins for eight nights and ultimately gets the king of the goblins to light the menorah with his own hand and at the end of everything saves Hanukkah and goes back down into town to get his lockies because lockies sound good that's the moral of the story is anything is worth going through to get lockies the story had a very heavy feel of the brave little tailor disney did a fun version of that with mickey way back in the 50s i believe it was but again this goes back to regular European folklore of the tailor. In this case, generally trying to fight or out with giants, so goblins. But I mean, as a session, you've got your party or you've got your Herschel NPC or however you want to do. You've got a synagogue and you've got goblins, including a goblin king. This is like pre-made setup, ready to run a one-off adventure. It's absolutely perfect. I loved it. Learning more about Herschel too, again, looking at some of his other lores, again, he was very snide, very snarky. Some people considered him a holy man at various points, so him going to the synagogue does not seem too far out of line. One of my favorite side stories I read about Herschel was he was walking down the road one day, he stops at an inn, and he asks for room and a dinner, and the innkeeper and the wife tell him no, and he gets in a giant rage and says, do you want me to do what my father did when people told him no when he asked for dinner? And they totally get freaked out. And so they give him a room and dinner and he accepts graciously. And in the morning they, they give him the stuff and they're like, we have to ask, what did your father actually do when people told him no? He looks at him, shrugs and says, he went hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that is the gist of a lot of his stories. A lot of it is bluster and misdirection. A lot of it is relying on people's preconceived notions to lead them in the direction that you want them to go. He does have a lot of cleverness involved in all of his stories. Uh, He uses his wits. He doesn't resort to violence. Yeah. So we were talking about this and with these things in mind, obviously he does stuff in the synagogue. He is in various aspects considered kind of almost a holy man, like a monk would be where he doesn't belong to a church, but he's considered to be a man that has the wisdom of God or whatever deity he's with. Yahweh. Yeah. Yahweh. Well, again, I'm trying to be fairly neutral. In this case, yeah, it would be literally Yahweh. Again, he has that clever repose, but he's not violent. So we were thinking bard, rogue, maybe some multi-class cleric. And then Ian remembered, we've covered this. Yeah, we made a bard subclass that actually fit perfectly. And it is the College of Sophistry. So that is what we ended up making him as a College of Sophistry bard. Now, again, if you've missed that episode or you don't recall that College of Sophistry, had a lot of kind of rabble rouser, a good bit of like faith healer or televangelist that you kind of draw on people's expectations or you say what you know they want to hear. And again, it's a lot of spin doctoring. It's spinning the crowd. It's using your words more of a weapon than your actual physical abilities and feats. So this was just a perfect fit of something we created several months back. Yeah. And if you are interested in looking at that, it was one of our free write-ups. You can find that on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash taste. And while you're there, if you enjoy what you see, consider becoming a patron and helping support the show financially. How about that for a segue? 
Woohoo. <laughs> All right, let's go in and talk a little bit about how I started up Herschel. So naturally, I went with the folk hero background. Oh, of course. Because it just fits. And the passive ability of the folk hero to be whenever you are traveling in rural areas, you can always find a hearth to sleep at. You can always find room and board. You can always find someone who will put you up and give you a meal. That fits with the whole feel that you get from the Herschel of Ostropol stories. Yeah, exactly. Because again, like I said, he wasn't really a holy man, but he was considered very giving, very friendly. He would dispense wisdom and generally take down the rich a peg or two. And as often as not, the poorer people would benefit from such. And that kind of wisdom and wit is admired, if not revered. I don't know if that's too heavy of a word in a lot of Jewish tradition. And so having that ability is generally the sign of being blessed. And so... For his skills, you know, he gets animal handling and survival from Folk Hero. That's meh. There's a little bit in some of the stories where the animal handling kind of makes sense. Survival is, he's a wanderer, so it, it does make sense, but it's not a great. It's not great, though. The animal handling, again, there are stories in Jewish lore talking about Solomon. And this is things I've discussed with Ian in the past, where Solomon had items that allowed him to talk to animals. There was a point where Solomon was cursed. It was either during or just after the building of the temple where he had to kind of go and live with the wild as well. And again, seeing as Herschel comes from such a very much a Jewish tradition, doing such a, not a direct correlation, but some tie-in with some old lore about King Solomon would make a lot of sense as well. So I think you could argue these fairly easily. And then he gets deception and insight from his bard college. And I gave him performance, persuasion, and religion as his three base skills that he is proficient in from level one. Now, performance, again, with the bard isn't always singing and dancing. That could be something like storytelling or joke telling. Again, this would very much, this would be the type of performance Herschel probably would engage in. And whenever he got to, I think it's fifth level where you get expertise, he ended up taking expertise in deception and performance. Again, two very easily. Yeah. So that's the whole, you know, he's telling the story and he's misdirecting to get you to draw the conclusion that he wants you to draw and to direct your attention away from where he doesn't want it to be. And so he's got all that. His abilities that he gets from his bard college, the first one is tricks of the trade. So he's getting that proficiency and he is able to spend his inspiration dice on charisma deception checks or wisdom insight checks or whenever he's making an investigation check to discern an illusion. That last one's a little less prominent because there's not a lot of magic and not a lot of illusion in a lot of his stories. But the other two are big deals. Yeah, the other two are big deals. And again, if you start going back, particularly if you look at the story of Herschel and the Hanukkah goblins, I mean, you could easily draw up some points where there'd be some illusion there without issue without giving too much of the story away it mentions most of the goblins and what he does but not every single one so it does leave a bit to imagination and i'm sure illusion happened in there somewhere oh i'm sure and then the other one that he gets his six level ability is read the crowd so if he goes and spends a minute talking to a group of people and just milling about mingling having small talk make a dc15 insight check and if he succeeds, he gets advantage on all of his charisma-based checks against that crowd for the next 10 minutes. 
So it's literally reading the crowd, you know, getting a feel for who they are, what they're doing, what will work with them, what will fall flat. Yeah, I mean, this is any kind of public speaker at all would love this ability in life. If you can read a crowd in real life, that is half your public speaking, if not more. Absolutely. All right, and then getting into his spells. So for cantrips, starting off with friends, prestidigitation, spare the dying because he gets that as a college of sophistry bard that just is a freebie that he gets and vicious mockery vicious mockery has to be in there absolutely because again he was so famous for mocking the rich and the elite that was just what he did again also he was a jester so that was (laughs) non-negotiable so first level bane command and sanctuary so it's goading it's making people go to the conclusions that he wanted them to And then that sanctuary is somehow he was good enough to not get shivved by the first person that he did this to. Maybe it truly was a blessing. Maybe it was. Second level spells got enhance ability, phantasmal force, and suggestion. Again, playing into that whole misdirection, playing into making people think what you want. Third level going with dispel magic, hypnotic pattern, and tongues. I felt like tongues would be really important because you want the person that you're insulting to know that you're insulting them. Oh, absolutely. It's no fun if they're not. Well, sometimes it is, but generally it's a lot more fun if they know. I mean, you could be standing there cursing me out in Spanish and I wouldn't get any of it because I don't speak Spanish. But if you had tongues, I would understand every single word that you're saying. Exactly. And then at fourth level, he's got compulsion and confusion. So I intentionally went with a non-combat sort of spell list. I think the only spells he has that are even capable of dealing damage are Phantasmal Force and Vicious Mockery. Yeah, and I like this. Again, I really like social characters in D&D. I mean, I don't mind being able to deal a bunch of damage, but I really love the characters that get more by spinning people's brains than by leaving their brains on the pavement, as it were. Again, Herschel as a character, just kind of, I got a spot for him. He's quickly climbing on my list of favorites. And then for his kit, because they're going to want some sort of way for him to defend himself. I gave him a quarterstaff. It's a walking stick. He's a traveler. He needs a walking stick. Yeah, I can see that. I love your touch for the languages you gave him. I thought that was inspired. <laughs> yeah, so so I gave him common Hebrew and Yiddish. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely Just a little tongue in cheek there. Because, you know, he is a Eastern European Jewish folk hero. So he would know Hebrew. He would know Yiddish. I kind of want to watch Fiddler on the Roof and An American Tale now. <laughs> yeah. L'chaim. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that takes care of Herschel. Who suggested Herschel? Herschel was Zach Katz at Fantasize Me Pod on Twitter. That was great. Also, Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins, and then there's another children's Herschel book, I forget the title, was written by Eric Kimmel. Again, if you're of Jewish faith or have interest in Jewish culture, or you just want a kind of a cool story to read, that's actually a really good one. Go to your store or library, check it out. Again, a tip of my hat to Mr. Kimmel for putting out, because again, you see a lot of Christmas traditional stuff, but as Adam Sandler says, there's not too many Hanukkah songs out there, as it were. So thank you again. All right, so some honorable mentions before we get into Krampus. One of the ones that we wanted to really talk about are heraldic angels. Um, The angels as depicted in the Old Testament of the Bible are terrifying. They are terrifying. There's a reason why they say, be not afraid whenever they show up. 
yeah because if they came up jumping up saying surprise then yeah that'd be uh yeah you know be a thing you know you're just this shepherd out in the hills minding your own business you know getting ready to settle down for the night and all of a sudden these rings upon rings made of eyes upon eyes with wings flying all around them you know just sort of apparates into the air above you and just says do not be afraid i think i would shit myself yeah, I mean, really, if you want to find a literary depiction of an angel, Lovecraft is going to come pretty close some of the time, unfortunately. I mean, Lovecraft is obviously a writer. He's kind of a questionable person, to be polite. He's not kind of, and he is not questionable. He's a terrible human being. Again, I was trying to be polite, but yes. He's dead. We don't need to be polite. Fair enough. And that brings up another thing, a little sidebar. Yes, you can separate an artist from their art. It is possible. But anyway, complete rabbit trail. Lovecraft terrible person but the way he describes these unimaginable misshapen things that bend the ability of the human mind to comprehend is probably going to be a pretty close description of an actual heraldic angel as wonky as the biblical accounts are in describing them they are still pushing that limit of human comprehension right but when we're talking about heraldic angels you know honestly i would just make that a reskin of the angels that you have in D&D already. Yeah. I would almost give them the Frightful Presence ability because they are terrifying. But other than that, just use bog standard angels for that. Yeah. And again, honestly, the traditional Christmas story with Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Herod, the wise men were coming a bit late. But that whole thing, because I mean, even when the wise men approached, Jesus was technically too, not quite the Christmas story, but he ordered the murdering of all male children under a certain age. That right there, you could have the angels in there to protect working with your party to try to smuggle people out. I mean, you could really throw a Christmas story on the table with just a small touch of imagination because a lot of it's right there and workable right away. You could do a time scenario where you have to get out of an area in a certain amount of time being flanked by guards or whatever. Again, a very workable scenario on the tabletop. Yes. Uh, The next honorable mention is the Abominable Snowman from Rudolph. I've been called Yeti more than once in my life. I very much am Bumble-like. When I was in college, I actually worked in the analytical lab and they'd call me Bumble because I'm right about 6'4", so I'm taller than most. And our lab would always decorate for the holidays and they would use me to put the star on the tree. So again, I'm big. Most people tend to think that I have a bit of a physical presence. I tend to be softer spoken in person. I enjoy putting the decorations. So yeah, the Bumble kind of fits me and I do bounce most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And the great thing about using that monster is, again, There's already a monster in the monster manual that you can use. There is an upgraded variant to the Yeti in the back of the monster manual called the Abominable Yeti. So it's like a CR9, I think it is. It's a dire Yeti. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. And it's just a bigger, meaner Yeti. Yeah. And so you can make them, you know, angry with the bad tooth, or you could just make them happy and putting stuff on trees before or after he had his dental work. Either way, again, a fairly simple thing to put on the table, but a lot of fun. And if you're doing a Christmas-themed whatever, I mean, a Yeti is a great thing to drop for your players. It's going to be a lot of fun. Particularly if you have, like, anything that's Yeti-shaped and you put, like, a candy treat or maybe a stack of the powdered donuts could be your Yeti. I would totally do that. (laughs) And he has a little gnome friend named Hermie. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, to get Hermie the elf in, that was another request. Yeah, we thought about Hermie. Hermie's going to be a bit difficult. I mean, there's elves and gnomes. We could have worked something like that. Dentistry in D&D doesn't make a huge presence. Yeah, he would be an NPC that you would go to for a purpose. It's not a thing that you can really stat up. 
He would be a shop owner more than an encounter, really. But still, I mean, a fun possibility. So we totally invite you to work up a Hermie. And if you come up with something great, let us know. Yeah. All right. So staying in the vein of Claymation Rudolph and in keeping in theme with Bumble is Yukon Cornelius. Yukon Cornelius is probably my favorite character in that entire movie. I had a co-worker whenever I was still working in the sheet metal shop who looked and acted like Yukon Cornelius. Oh my he God, was, that had to be fun. He had the great big red beard and he weighed about 450 pounds. Did he still have the handlebar mustache too? Oh yes. Oh, oh perfect. yes. Perfect. And every so often, whenever we were joking around, he would take his chip and hammer and he would tap it on the table and... <laughs> I love, it. I love that he was in on the joke and embraced oh, yes. it. That, that makes oh, it yes. even better. I mean, he was the one that brought it up whenever he oh, first started awesome. working there. It was great. Joe is one of the good things about working at that place. Yukon was just barely missed the cuts of the ones we were going to flesh out. If we were going to flesh out Yukon, definitely a ranger. Yes. Favorite territory would have been Arctic or Tundra. Yukon could have been a lot of fun. We were just kind of running short on what we expected for our time. Yeah, we were running short on time and long on our list of characters. So he might come back next year and get a full write-up good and proper. But for now, he definitely gets the honorable mention. Absolutely. And then the last thing from that movie are the Misfit Toys from the Island of Misfit Toys. I had way too much fun with this one. (laughs) We did. And when we got to sitting down and thinking and talking about it, we think that this would actually be very useful as a magic item along the line of the Bag of Tricks. So that you reach in, I think there were 19 characters, 19 toys. Yeah. Not all of them are you know named or prominent in the movie, but there are 19 toys depicted in the movie. And so you roll a d20. On a 20, you roll twice, and then you get to pick which one of the two that you get. Right. Or you could get both, theoretically, possibly. But yeah. Uh, I don't want to pull two toys out. But some of these, basically what they do is whenever you pull them out, they do a spell effect. So... A couple of the ones that we actually went ahead and did. So there's the airplane that can't fly. So you pull him out. He casts Earthbind. So whatever you're casting it at can't fly either. We had the squirt gun that shoots jelly. So that casts web because it's sticky. It's sticky. Yeah, again, that one's an easy one. <laughs> yeah, that one's an easy one. There's a bear with wings. It summons an owlbear. Yeah, we went back and forth on this one. But you know what? Just an instant summon creature of an owlbear. I would be perfectly happy with that any day. Just there you go. Just plop. And I think... Owlbears are a CR3, so, I mean, it's a stout summon. Yeah. So I would definitely want to make sure that this is a little bit of a higher level item. But yeah, you summon an owlbear. And then my personal favorite, the Charlie in a Box. (laughs) Charlie in the Box casts Tasha's Hideous Laughter. Yeah, that was so much fun. And again, one of the things we talked about was trying to flesh out something for each of these toys because it would make a great table to roll and we would still be here for four hours. So, and awesome. Who suggested the toys? Do we recall? The Misfit toys were requested by Goblin Scrawl Games. So at Goblin Scrawl. So thank you for that one because that one was great. Yeah, that was very well done. Thank you. And now we have two more honorable mentions. The first one was Jack Skellington because Nightmare Before Christmas is a Christmas movie. I don't care if you say that it's a Halloween movie. It is also a Halloween movie, but it is a Christmas movie. Yeah, at this point, it's been long enough. I'm going to put this full well into the it is a classic. And I will fight anybody who says that Nightmare Before Christmas is not a classic. I absolutely love it. It is a longtime favorite. Jack Skellington kind of going back and forth. We were thinking flavors of Bard, probably like beginning first, second level Artificer in there as well. A lot of potential, but we weren't 
weren't quite sure which direction fully to go with Jack. That being said, if we did the full Nightmare Before Christmas theme could be an episode all in itself because, again, just a ton of good stuff in there. One could possibly say there's a little bit of Ranger because he has Zero as a companion or maybe a sorcerer as a familiar. I don't know how you want to work with that. There was a lot he, to... He could be an undying warlock. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Again, kind of... An kid- impact of the chain. So that's his familiar, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot to work with and we weren't quite sure which direction we wanted to go and kind of to save time so we didn't spend weeks debating on what exactly to do with Michel Jacques and his Le Estrange Noël, which is the French title of that, which I had to watch in French class. It's strange <laughs> because the entire movie was in French, except for the songs, since they were copyrighted, were in English. There you go. Right. There you go. <laughs> and then the final honorable mention is for Heat Miser and Snow Miser. These are some old favorites. Again, this is that weird 60s, 70s, not quite claymation, not quite puppets. Again, hands down, Earth Genasi Sorcerers. They might have a flavor with Bard because they both have an awesome song and dance scene in the movie. Wait, why did you just say Earth Genasi? Not Earth Genasi, I'm sorry. Blah, yeah. just... Heat Miser is a fire Genasi and Snow Miser is a water Genasi. Water Genasi. I was thinking Genasi and my brain shifted to critical role. So there's an Earth Genasi in there. So my brain okay. just blopped. So yeah. It's okay. Fire Genasi. Water Genasi. Obviously sorcerers. Some sort of elemental sorcerers, yeah. Yeah. Maybe a flavor of Bard. The Year Without Santa is kind of a wonky. It's not my favorite of the holiday special cartoon show movie things. But those two song and dance scenes, kick ass. Just putting that (laughs) out there. (laughs) And those are our honorable mentions. So if you wanted something that did not make the cut, write to us and we'll try and include it next year. All right. That brings us to the star of the show. Time for Krampus. Um, Krampus, in a Christmas lore tradition, Krampus is one of the companions of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas being the historical basis for modern Santa Claus. Why we call him St. Nick. One of St. Nicholas's miracles was there were some kids that got chopped up and brined in pickle brine. And he came along and magically reanimated them restored them to life like magically put them back together and revived them so he's got a couple levels of necromancer it's gonna happen he's a cleric Um, yeah i mean he was a catholic cardinal he's a cleric yeah no absolutely i was gonna say though if you enjoy like going back some of the darker stories again the nutcracker grim's fairy tales if you like those enjoy those really look up the stories and histories of some of the catholic saints those can be some wonky wonky weird things (laughs) in there yeah (laughs) some of the miracles that some of these saints do are weird (laughs) but krampus is one of the companions of saint nicholas the companion that accompanies saint nicholas on his travels varies from region to region and culture to culture growing up the companion for saint nicholas or nikolaus because my mom is german uh, the companion that i grew up with was schwarzapeda black peter who is very culturally inappropriate he is the opposite of political correct yeah going back so as we were looking up krampus and again krampus seems to be the one the one assistant. krampus is getting a resurgence right he now. is getting a resurgence and as that you know accompaniment or helper of saint nick you look at the other traditional helpers of saint nick and they weren't necessarily happy little elves again kind of dark very culturally inappropriate unfortunately Generally, it was going to be something that reflected a dirty, obviously a poor nature. Culturally, this was kind of used by various cultures to 
to point and say, we don't want to be like them. So be like St. Nicholas, this good guy, and he's clean and happy and he'll give you stuff. Or he can be the dirty insert, whatever you're going to insert. Because again, it did depend on culture, but it was generally not a good role to fill, we will say. (laughs) Right. Typically, the companion would be in blackface because they're St. Nicholas's assistant and they're the ones that are going up and down the chimneys. So it was supposed to depict the soot from the chimney, but there are a lot of cultural sensitivity problems with walking around in blackface. Don't do it. Don't do it, guys. Just don't. If you think it's a good idea, just no. It's never a good idea. Never, ever, ever a good idea. But the whole premise of Schwarzapeda is also a bit racist because he is he specifically is depicted as being a Spanish Moor. So the dark skinned of North African descent, Muslim Spaniards. And the whole premise was if you were bad, Schwarzapeda would take you and stick you in a sack and take you back to Spain with him. And then you would have to work in the coal mines. So there are layers of offensiveness there. So I'm glad that we're not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. The more that we delve into this, the more Icky appealing Krampus looks. Yeah. I mean, Krampus is this horrible devil creature that's going to come and steal kids. And really, culturally, he's the best of the lot. Yes. <laughs> that said, Krampus himself is kind of interesting. He does come in this thing. I shouldn't say he. I really should say them or they because there are both male and female depictions of Krampus. So Krampus could be male, Krampus could be female. Either one, I've seen depictions of both. I've read and heard stories of both. And yet there's not many Krampuses, there is a Krampus. So again, kind of going with your German lore there. A lot of your German lore's got a lot of that switching in between and that's perfectly fine. Krampus himself though, again, gender neutral, species neutral, culturally neutral. We've got a neutral baddie, I like it. So starting off with Krampus, there are lots of bits and pieces of lore to pull from. And I kind of wanted Krampus to be a big, powerful entity. So I basically decided to make Krampus an archdevil. Right. And we were going back and forth. So, I mean, obviously Krampus has some sort of demonic or devilish feel. And really what it came down to is looking at the blood war, looking at your stats. The demons tend to be chaotic. The devils tend to be lawful. And despite all of Krampus's, you know, brutalities and faults and everything he's doing, he definitely falls on the lawful side of the coin. Right. And so we've opted for making him a devil, making him lawful evil. And he has an ability that I've tacked on right at the front, bound by duty. So his duty is to collect naughty children, put them in his sack, and carry them away to Bator. So as such, he will never attack a good aligned creature except in instances of self-defense. Makes perfect sense. I have no issue with that at all. Because he leaves the good girls and boys alone. Yeah. That's the whole thing about Krampus is if you behave... Krampus will leave you alone, and Krampus will leave you the presents that St. Nick gives him to give you. So if you behave, and you wear your Christmas socks, Krampus will leave you alone, you get to eat Christmas dinner, and the Yule Cat won't eat you. I mean, it's a win-win-win. I mean, it's great. It sure is, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Krampus also has the frightful presence, so everyone of Krampus's choice that can see him within 120 feet has to succeed on a wisdom save or become frightened for a minute lasts until you succeed on the saving throw or a minute passes. And once it expires or once you save, you are immune to the fear effect for the next 24 hours. Krampus is a frightening creature. Yes, that is exactly what it is. And he's supposed to be scary. So he has innate spell casting. He can at will cast darkness, detect evil and good, and freedom of movement. I wanted him to have 
something on him that no matter what you do, you cannot stop Krampus. Krampus is the Terminator. He doesn't eat, he doesn't sleep, you can't stop him. Three times a day each, he can cast Dimension Door, Hold Monster, or True Seeing. So, again, these are all things that enable him to do his job. Right, you can't hide from Krampus. Don't hide, just be good. (laughs) Right, and then once a day, he can cast Plane Shift. That's how he takes all of the naughty boys and girls back to his lair in Bator. Okay. So I gave him variable size. He is by default a huge devil. Yes. But he can magically make himself either medium or large at his discretion or return to huge size. I like that. That way he can get in small places to grab the naughty kids or big to defend or whatever else. Or maybe he's grabbing some giant kids one day so he needs to be a little bit larger. Right. And then, you know, because... One of the big things at the holidays in Europe is, you know, St. Nicholas and Krampus walking down the street. It's going to look really weird if Krampus is 20 feet tall. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I gave him Shadow Stealth from the Banderhob stat block. So in Dim Light or Darkness, he can take the hide action as a bonus action because he does have that sort of feel that... Grab you from the shadows? Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. He is the monster under the bed. Yes. And then he's got legendary resistances. He's got infernal sight so he can see through magical darkness as though it were non-magical. And then the last thing he's got is his sack. So Krampus's sack is functioning like the extra planar dungeon of an astral dreadnought stomach. And I have flavored it to be the inside of a snow globe. I love that. I was reading that. I was like, that's so perfect. (laughs) So it is basically a 1,000 foot diameter snow globe that has perpetually falling snow, but the snow never accumulates to be more than an inch thick and it's not cold. Um, So it just looks like snow. Or, I mean, we can make it cold because I put him in Stygia. So that's one of the cold layers of the Nine Hells. So we can make that cold. Yeah, it keeps that winter feel. Yeah. And if Krampus dies... The sack is immediately returned to Stygia and the contents are emptied into a pit and Krampus's bearded devils and ice devils sort out the naughty children that were in the sack and put them into cages to wait for Krampus to be regenerated. Yeah, I like that. Now, I see two different scenarios we could run with Krampus. I mean, a one-off is super easy to do, obviously. You can have your party sit there and Krampus trying to grab up all the kids and your party can try to fight Krampus off and there's your one-off and done. Again, really easy to do. Another way you could do this, I see that would be a lot of fun, would be more of a campaign arc and you could start it off Kind of like in the manner of like the JRPGs where you'd have your level one, two characters come up doing stuff in the town. And then Krampus comes up as the big baddie and he steals all the kids anyway, despite the party trying to prevent him. They can maybe slow his progress, but he gets most of his job done. And then maybe the party's goal after that is to follow Krampus down into Stygia and rescue the children somehow. And you could make that as long of an arc as you wanted. Either way, both would work great. Both lead to a lot of really fun storytelling possibilities that you can work with. And, and I mean, we were talking initially about putting together a sort of a one-shot thing where basically Santa Claus comes to you and says, Krampus is missing or Krampus is dead. You need to find a new Krampus. Yeah, we talked about that. I still have a hard time figuring out how you would choose who the new Krampus would be unless the DM had already pre-selected a new Krampus that the party had to find versus the party getting together and saying, hey, you, you're Krampus now, which I guess could kind of work. <laughs> well, I would. I was thinking of it because at that point we were still going to be making Krampus an Archfey yes. because Santa Claus is an Archfey. I don't care what you say. Um, not you, James, you, <laughs> but 
whoever listener happens you. to be listening. Yeah, listener you. The royal you. <laughs> but at that point, it would be one of those things where it was a mantle that had a designated heir. And the premise that I had was that whoever was doing this had abducted the designated heir and killed Krampus so that the mantle couldn't pass. Okay. Yeah, that would make a lot more sense. And that would be easier to build a story around. Yeah. And I had also said that the person who had done that was Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's Red Dragon Jeff Bezos who did that because Krampus abducting naughty children is bad for the bottom line in a very capitalistic Christmas. That's right. You can't order Amazon stuff. Yeah, (laughs) there are fewer kids to order things for. So therefore, you can't abduct the naughty children. Because the parents are ordering things to placate their naughty children. So getting into what Krampus can do. He, of course, has multi-attack. He starts off with his frightful presence, and then he makes three attacks, two with his switches and one with his claw. So one of the big things that Krampus has is this bundle of birch switches that he carries in his hand that he switches the naughty children with. So it is a basic, you know, bludgeoning weapon attack on a hit The target has to succeed on a wisdom saving throw or immediately use his reaction, if available, to move as far as its speed allows away from Krampus. So this is basically dissonant whispers on a creature whenever he hits them with it. I mean, Krampus and everything about Krampus should be terrifying. He's not fluffy. He's not nice. He is a scary mofo. And I added this. This may be a little bit overkill, but if the target is under the effects of Krampus's frightful presence, it automatically fails its next saving throw to end the frightened condition. So it doesn't get that save to end the frightened condition if they fail the save against the runaway from the switches. I'm okay with that, I think. I'm afraid a DM would be able to more or less stun lock a character. But again, Krampus is kind of beefy and should be terrifying so uh yeah i could see that i mean he ends up being like a cr18 monster so yeah this is going to be a an end game sort of boss monster anyway then on top of that he's got his claw attack which if it hits a huge or smaller creature they become grappled and he can't use his claw attack against anything else while he has something grappled If he has a creature grappled, he can make a claw attack against them. And if it hits, he hoists them up into the sack. So the sack, again, is an interdimensional space. You can only get into it with a wish spell. You can only get out of it with a spell that allows for interplanar travel. So like plane shift or if Krampus willingly empties you out just in the same way that an Astral Dreadnought's stomach works. And then the last one is Shadow Step. So he can magically teleport up to 40 feet to an unoccupied space of dim light or darkness that it can see. And before or after teleporting, it can make a single melee attack. I'm good to follow that. Yeah. No, that sounds great. And then for legendary actions, three legendary actions. So basically bog standard. One action to use his birch switches. One action to make a wisdom perception check. So he can make perception checks in combat or two actions to shadow step nice again yeah that shadow step's kind of perfect because you're stepping in and out of darkness it kind of lets you come up behind someone and throw them in the bag yeah i love that and again that was another thing that was pulled from the bander hob so i pulled liberally from existing creatures on this batch of stuff my desk was thoroughly covered i had like <laughs> eight books out while i was working but i mean that is the beauty of homebrew if you homebrew well I mean, sometimes you can be truly inspired and build something from the ground up. But a lot of it is taking something fun, Yolcat, Krampus, Herschel, the Nutcracker. I mean, these things that we know, and you just got to tweak 
things just a little bit and make them fit. You might have to borrow a stat or two from another creature, but there's no reason they can't work. That is one of the beauties that if you do homebrew and world building well, small changes or small additions can have such flavor and a huge effect. And it's always great to not have to reinvent the wheel. If you know that there's a creature that has an ability that you want or that is similar to what you want, just go to it and make it work mechanically the same because they've already gone through and figured out the mechanics. Yeah. All right. I think that's everything. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I had a ton of fun doing this. Like I said, I got to learn a lot. I got to discover a lot of new stuff. Got to do some quirky things. I really, really enjoyed. We thank all of our listeners for being with us this past year. Again, we're going to take the rest of the holiday season off to do family stuff and holiday stuff. Herschel would be proud, I'm sure. Yeah. There might be some latkes. (laughs) There might be. Uh, No promises. (laughs) Just if you're Southern, think hash browns and you're pretty darn close. They're potato pancakes. Yeah. But that'll bring us to the end of our holiday special. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespearean insult page day calendar inspired role play prompts six days a week. They're going up on the Twitter account and getting cross posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts at Undercommon Taste. There's not going to be very many more of those. By the time we record again, I should have whatever my new calendar is going to be and figure out if I'm going to be doing that again. I have seen that you're posting your advent calendar surprises as well. I am on my personal Twitter account and then retweeting them on the Undercommon Taste account. My wife got me a scotch advent calendar, so I've been doing reviews on all of the scotches that I've been getting every day. And I've had some good ones. I've only had a couple that I didn't really care for. But by and large, that's another thing that I've been doing. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash taste. That's where all of our write-ups go. Once I get the write-ups for these creatures fleshed out a little bit, I'm going to be putting them up on the Patreon account. So you'll be able to access the Nutcracker, Krampus, Herschel, and Yule Cat to use at your table. While you're there, consider becoming a patron and helping support the show financially. We're also on Discord. You can find a link to the Discord in the show notes. So please come and talk to us. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, please give us a rate and a review. This helps us know what you want to hear more of and increases our visibility. So thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Happy holidays. And we'll see you in the new year. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at undercommontaste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Crowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.